What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Deer Vein Podcast. Today we have Greg Glissinger. Did I say that right, Glissinger? Uh, close enough. <laughs> close enough. All right, perfect. Yeah. So today we got Greg on, and Greg is a giant buck killer with Drury Outdoors. Uh, he's got some major deer on the wall. Uh, I, I know none of you can see the video. I like to do video podcasts because I can see Greg and I can read facial expressions so that I can understand if he's actually interested in what I'm saying or not. Uh, but also, um, so I, but I don't post these videos anywhere really, but he's got some giant deer behind him and we're going to talk about them today. Uh, talk about a lot of, uh, land setup, land management type activity, and also the amount of work that goes into it. And then at the end of this, we're going to roll into late season and how Greg is planning out his late season. Cause he still has a few tags to fill. So if you guys out there have some tags to fill yet and you're not sure exactly how to approach it stick around because that's what we're going to be talking today about today so with that greg thanks for joining me man we are what maybe 15 miles apart <laughs> yeah yeah that's a dang good guess not very far when you reached out and we were playing uh tag and so forth and you told me where you're from and i was like oh my gosh it's literally right up my back door Right. Yeah. We'll have to, I know you're a super busy dude in the fall. So maybe, maybe next summer we'll get together over some beers and, uh, and record a podcast in person. It'll be good. Yeah. That'd be fun. I would enjoy yeah. that. Yeah. Um, well, cool. So why don't, why don't you, uh, give a little bit background on yourself for anyone who doesn't know you or anyone who's kind of been living under a rock? Sure. So, uh, they went, uh, Drew Outdoors for, uh, this is going into my 11th official year, um, 13, I think it's 13 years, yeah, 13 unofficial. So when you first start out back 13, 14, 15 years ago, even 20 years ago, you had, you know, a year or two or sometimes three years of kind of, uh, I call it a trial period, lack of a better description. And they want to see how you produced, you know, did they meet your expectations? You know, what did you say in general public, you know, to, to keep their sponsors in check and, you know, not saying anything foolish and so forth. So once we got through that trial period, they brought me on board 11 years ago and been there ever since and started out with just uh, the DVDs. That goes back a long ways, yeah. um, but we were, on doing the DVDs for a few years. And then they moved me over to Natural Born, which was on the Pursuit channel for a few years. Um, and then we moved over to uh, Critical Mass for the first three years. And then for the last two, uh, when Matthews uh, came on board, uh, they wanted us to switch over to uh, their title show, which was uh, Matthews Bell Madness. And Casey and I, uh, my sidekick is very, very, very uh, passionate about the stick and string. So when we've got that invite to move to that show, we, we were very excited about it because that's really what we'd love to do. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I love shooting, shooting with a gun as well. But if, if you ask me what my true passions are and what I really enjoy, it's, it's basically anything with a stick and string. So um, gotcha. that kind of, you know, been hunting, hunting whitetails for over 25 years um been all over the midwest um been from wisconsin illinois uh kansas uh obviously wisconsin uh oklahoma uh iowa missouri i think that 
pretty much covers it um, yeah. for whitetails. Uh, we go out west every year uh, to chase mule deer and elk, um, whether that be in Colorado or New Mexico. Uh, this year, I had the pleasure of going to Alberta with Lee Lakoski from the Crush. Nice. Uh, and trip uh, to Alberta together, and that was a, a very epic, unbelievable experience. So that was fun. Um, but yeah, next year we're going to uh, Alaska uh, with the Matthews to chase moose and brown bear. Nice. So we'll be in Alaska for about two and a half weeks or so in September. So that's a bucket list for me. So oh, yeah, about that. That'll be awesome. That's a that's a bucket list for for me as well. Moose. Uh, I I I'm on the fence on on brown bear at the moment. Not because it's brown bear. I'm just on the fence in bear in general. Not because I don't want to do it. Just because there's other bucket list items yeah. ahead of that. Right. Sure. So yeah, yeah. Same. Well, we're, we're, what we're gonna do the the brown bear if we get a moose. Moose is the uh, priority. So if we tag out and we have time, yeah. then we're going to switch over to brown bear. But yeah, it's, it's all about the moose for sure. Oh, that's awesome. That's exciting, dude. That's really yeah, exciting. It is. Really exciting. All right. You know, the only thing that I ever like makes my skin crawl is when you see those people in the videos with moose in Alaska and they have, they're wearing a whole mosquito net just to, just to hide. <laughs> It, it can be tough. I've been in, uh, this, this will be my fourth trip to Alaska and oh, it's, nice. it's been, I've been old for three with a bow. Um, so it's been tough. Uh, but yeah, it, Alaska is, is, I, I say it's the man up trip, uh, physically, mentally. Um, it's a grind. Um, you don't shower for 11, 12 days. Um, you know, part of you, you know, stink that you never thought would stink. It's, it's a different <laughs> experience, but you know, you, once you get back, you're glad to get back. But once you are home for a day or two, you're like, man, I wish I would never left. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've always said the harder the suck, the better the reward. Um, yeah. and it, it's a grind. I mean, you know, carrying 30, 40 pounds on your back, whatever it may be. And, and walking 12, 13 miles a day, it, it's, in Alaska, just it's tough. It's tough terrain. It's tough on your hips. Tough on your knees, ankles. It's it's not for a fainted heart. I mean, you yeah. mentally want to be there because it just wants to spit. You're always wet. You're always cold. You're always damp. Um, it's it's con it's it's tough. And if you're not really want to be there, uh, you won't last long mentally. mentally. Yeah, that's that's fair. Uh... I've always thought that the best memories come out of the suck. Like the memories oh, that you tell at the do. bar. Yeah. 100%. I agree. <laughs> they come easy. The memories are not as good. But when it, when it sucks and it's hard, you know, deeper the suck, the, 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 right. the better the memories. I agree 100%. Yeah. 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 And I know, uh, yeah. And personal experience on that is I finally got my first elk uh, last year. And it was, I think, day 31 or 32. I'd been out there for oh, four wow. years. Um, you know, 10, 12 days at a crack. And uh awesome. finally, yeah, lots of close encounters, but never able to actually, you know, get get my bow sight on a bull broadside or even like a reasonable shot. And uh oh. finally, one of my buddies uh looked at me when I was um out there last year. He had he had stuck a bull and lost it. He's he was kicking himself really hard, seven yards 
frontal coming downhill at him and he stuck him in the shoulder and he was just down in the dumps. And so this, the next day we went out or he went and looked all next day and didn't find him. And then he went the next morning and didn't find him after that. And then we were out the following morning together and we got on a bowl and he was like, Hey man, this is all you just please do me a favor and kill this thing. <laughs> that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So he sat back and he did the call in and brought him. He goes, man, if you get up in here, just make sure he can't get uphill on you and get the wind. And he's going to try to, he's going to come out of this thick, dark timber patch. And he's going to try to go uphill. Just make sure you cut him off there and you'll, you'll have a shot. And that's exactly what he did. So I couldn't have, I couldn't have been happier. I, I looked at him when we found him. I said, how much meat do you want, man? I got nothing like, you know, so he took a, he took a whole uh, rear quarter and a whole loin and I was happy to give it to him. I was like, here you go. Like never go elk hunting. I went elk hunting in my early thirties for the first time. And a friend of mine took me in and uh, there's a last minute deal. He gave me like three weeks notice and a guy canceled. And anyway, um he said i'm really afraid to take you greg and i said why and he said because you'll never miss a september in the mountains again and, <laughs> and he was right i mean i if, if someone said pick one week you can only go one week it would be september in in chasing elk somewhere in the mountains mm-hmm. i love what don't get me wrong i do but there's something about a 900 pound elk bugling his head off coming through aspen trees that just to me is is unbelievable mm-hmm. there is there is you can see why midwesterners go out there and then get stuck and they just never come back yeah right 100 <laughs> percent. yep yep yeah especially you know if if you're from illinois or even like south central wisconsin where we're just kind of flat land right we're not in that western part it's just all flat swamp you get out there and you're like this is gorgeous percent. <laughs> so yeah, jump in. Let's let's jump over to over to Whitetail. So you have a couple like monsters under your belt. Extra innings is a buck that you got. Two is that 2018? Did you get him? Yep, yep, yep. yep. And he was two almost 240 inches. Yeah, 239 and change. Yep. Yep. And then major league was 203. Yeah, you did your homework. Okay. You yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, I mean, those are phenomenal bucks. And Major League was 2017 or 2016? 17, yeah. Okay. And then extra was 239. And then we went uh, 194, um, was a Missouri buck following extra innings. And then last year we shot um, triple play, which went 233. Yes. Um, so we've been on a very blessed run these last four years. Have all have all these bucks come off the same farm or – various farms uh various farms yeah there's the the three the three 200s were off the same farm the 194 was off the missouri farm okay um where were the three three 200s is that a wisconsin or is that an iowa or illinois that's an iowa farm an iowa farm okay yep the 194 was a missouri farm gotcha i mean regardless of where you are those are hell of deer you know Um, Yeah. yeah so and we were talking a little bit before this but um just to reiterate so we're looking at you guys own you guys own property or lease property uh, i've done both currently we, we own what we're hunting now um it's taken me a long time to get there um but yeah but currently we, we own what we hunt today 
Gotcha. Okay. Did you ever, did you ever lease at all before yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, early on, that's how I cut my teeth, um, okay. was leasing stuff. And, you know, one thing I will give advice to anybody who's leasing is make sure you, well, the best advice would be try to get a 100, 101 year with a first right of refusal to get it the next year. Assess, the, assess it because you don't want to dump a whole lot of time, money, and energy into a farm you truly don't know if you like it and all those things and if the DNA is there that you like. And if it is, then go ahead and go back to the landowner and say, hey, you know, what is, what is the longest term you'll give me? You know, is it three? Is it five? Is it seven? I, I have no idea. But the longer the term, the better you are because then, then you know, if you build a relationship with the landowner, you know, can you, can you do some food plots? Could you do some edge feathering. Can you do some other stuff that's in, in, you know, help the habitat? And if the landowner is habitat savvy, he's probably going to appreciate your efforts and work and all that stuff that goes into. Um, but keep in mind, you know, your fruits of your labor when you put stuff in into any property. Yes, it may turn around that fall, but it's usually a couple of years that it's really going to benefit because if you start letting bucks go and let them age. You know, you you want all that time for that to basically, you know, suit the rewards of your efforts. So right. try to lock that lease up if you can. Some some you can't, but if you can't, I'm not so sure I would stay there. And I say that because it happened to me, which was I fell in love with a piece of property, sunk my teeth into it, really turned it around, and then all of a sudden, um, the piece of property was average at best and I turned it around and we started seeing some really good deer then all of a sudden his grandkids came out of the woodwork and now they were interested they weren't interested before but since I turned everything around I didn't have a place to hunt anymore um, so that's why I say if you can tie it up if you're going to really turn it around make sure you you know try to do that the best you can or if you yeah. don't and and if you don't tie it up and you turn that farm around word will get out you know coffee shops talk i don't care what you say and then another another hunter is going to come in and hear about it and he's going to outbid you or whatever the case may be and in my case i couldn't afford to go up and you know that that's another form that happened to me i just got outbid so try it once you do a one-year lease for sure once you get through that one year if you like it then try to tie him down the best you can yeah yeah and i you know, that's one of those, that's one of those tough pieces. It just in general, like even asking for permission on people's property, like you finally get someone to, to get permission on there and you start, you start haunting it and you might not even like it. It might suck. And so then you put some effort into it and then like you had happened to you, Oh, the grandkids want to come out here and hunt this year. Oh, you don't mind if they sit in your tree stands, do you? You don't mind if they do this, do you? And all of a sudden you're like, well, yeah, but you're the landowner and this is free or even you know you get that lease scenario like you're saying and oh my gosh all of a sudden you know you're showing the property owner some trail camera pictures or they're seeing the bucks you're taking and all of a sudden yeah the cousins come and the brother-in-law comes and the and all of a sudden you're working you're like working yourself right out of that lease <laughs> that's exactly what happens you work yourself right out of the lease right yep. and so it creates this um awful really it creates this like awful dynamic of how much you actually want to share 
with the landowner when you're out there. And if you get one, you know, you might get a really nice, you know, you might shoot a 180 and you're like, yeah, I was a little late point. I didn't feel like swinging by the house, you know, and you just don't say anything about it, you know? Um, yeah, but that's very, like a bad thing to do in my opinion. Yeah, it's in a very awkward situation. So you, you want to be transparent the best you can, right? Because if, if you go off this honesty relationship, it's not going to last long anyway. Right. So the best thing to do is try to tie it up as long as he's willing to do it. And if he's not willing to tie it up, then maybe you should reconsider unless it's just really that good. Right. Um, but keep in mind, you know, the next year you may not have it. So mm-hmm. um, that, and that's when, that's when it converted. I started, you know, it, it, it soured me to a point that I'm like, okay, I got to start, you know, trying to figure this out. Trying to save your pennies and buy some, yeah, buy something. Yeah. So then, okay. So here's a, here's a question for you. If you could lease similar area, if you could lease 160 acres or buy 40 acres, what would you do? I'd buy 40. No doubt. Okay. And why It's because Oh, shoot. Land values have continued to gone up. It is right next to buying your house. It's the, it's the best investment you're going to have for, from an asset in a, you know, um, acquisition for you. And plus, let me tell you, the first time you walk out to your, to, to your dirt and you're tilling it over and you're making food plots, it is so gratifying. Um, it's really hard to put in words until you do it. Uh, my first piece, I, I, I would go up at Saturday morning. I'd leave before sunrise. It was an hour and a half drive with a truck and a trailer. And I would not come home until two or three in the morning. And my wife would go, you're nuts. Because I was that driven to get stuff done. Heck, I was using a weed whacker. I was using a lawnmower to do food plots. I mean, I was basic, you know, a rotary hoe instead of a tiller. I mean, I was basic, basic down to whatever would fit in the back of the truck. And it's, it's so different than leasing because you know that, hey, you know what? This is mine. I can, I can convert it. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to look right. over my shoulder. I don't have to ask for permission and all those things. And if you buy the right 40, some of, some of the great deer that I friends and family have shot have been off of small pieces. So it's not like it's impossible. Um, just be selective yeah. on where you, where you buy it. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I, I figured, I figured that would be your response, but I was just, I was curious because, you know, some people will based on the financial situation a 160 lease and I obviously would be less expensive annually per or very likely less expensive annually than a 40 acre piece, depending on how much you buy for it or pay for it. But at the same time, uh, you get more land or you get the ability to guarantee two, three, four years down the line, it's going to be as you want it to be rather than, I don't know, flip of a coin. And it's maybe just because of the least experience I was soured by it all. And, yeah. And so once you, once you've gone down that path a couple of times, then you want to, you know, kind of have your own place mm-hmm. that you don't have to look over your shoulder. And, and, and honestly, you become more passionate about it and you spend yeah. a lot more time there and you really put the labor into it. And it's fun to see that stuff turn around. It really is rewarding. Yeah. And so I would, that's what I would do. Okay. No, I, that's, that's probably what I would do too. Um, if you were, so, you know, on the subject of, of buying land and starting land in terms of property management, um, I'm trying to think here, I want to get to property management, but before that I want to get to 
those four bucks that we mentioned earlier, earlier, um, are you like with those, with those high caliber deer, are you killing them mainly in the early season in the free rut in the rut in the late season, all across the board? Talk to me about the, the strategies behind, I guess, each of those deer, if you would. Sure. Um, you know, Ma major league was the first one he was the 203 and 17 and i chased him for four years prior he was seven years old um and when i say i chased him for three but i knew i knew him when i knew him when he was three years old but i chased him for three so um he once you if someone really wants to learn a lot about hunting whitetails and i'll use this major league as an example was I thought I knew a lot, but when you decide to chase a animal, and I mean one, and, and, and I would recommend this to anybody, pick out a deer. I don't care if he's 110 inch or 150 inch. I don't care. Pick out a deer and go, you know what? I'm going to go after that deer and only that deer. And then study the heck out of it. It will change your mindset. It'll change everything about you on how you hunt. And you'll learn so much. And that deer taught me. He took me from where I was to where I am now, purely because we had to study our tails off to get to him. And he kicked our butts for three years. And once we got him figured out, um, you know, obviously it happened. But he taught us so much along the way, which uh, you're like, well, what's some of those examples? Prime example was, all, every single trail picture that I have of him, he never broke a time in any picture. So what, is it, what does that tell you? Any idea? He's, well, he's not fighting. He's not aggressive. He's not aggressive, right? So yeah. are, would you call to him? No, I wouldn't. No. But I, would have never, I would have never picked that up. <laughs> no, but see, this, the, these are the things that I'm trying to, trying to explain, yeah. right? Is, yeah. When you study a deer and you study the corridors and you study when you see them and, and daylighting and all these things, and you start looking at them all season and for four years, he never broke a time. So I'm like, he, he will run or walk away from any deer that's aggressive. So when I find him, the last thing I'm going to do is call to him because he's, I'm probably going to push him out. Right. Even, even though he was that big, he, he just doesn't, he doesn't want any type of interaction with other bucks. It's just his personality. And so when you study deer like that, deer are like people. Deer have different personalities. Some are aggressive, some are medium, and some are very shy. Um, but once you figure that out and you notice that, it will change how you react within them to hunt them. So going back, we had some encounters with them. And then in 16, we didn't see them at all on the hoof. And then the spring of 17, um, we found, well, in spring of 16, we found uh, uh, his match set in a place we called Pretty Woods. And then in spring of 17, we found his, his same match set within 60 yards of the set we found the previous year. Okay. So I looked at Lisa, my wife, and I looked at Casey, and I'm like, we got him. You're like, what do you mean? And I said, this is the spot. This is where he wants to be. And we couldn't figure it out because we were, we were hunting all the way around him, but we never got him in daylight. He wasn't coming out of the woods. That's the bottom line. He just wasn't coming out. And when he did come out, it was well in the dark. Mm -hmm. And so I said, we're going to hang a set 
right here in this tree in this fall we're going to get him and sure enough uh we hunted around him all that fall of 17 bouncing around him never saw him never saw him never saw him never saw him and then finally we had the right pressure the right wind and it was november 3rd november 3rd november 3rd and november 4th we went in there for the first time hard timber ridge and um we went in there for all day set went in there 45 minutes before uh daybreak and stayed 45 minutes after dark and believe it or not we saw them day one for first time in two years yeah. i've seen this on the hoof and i saw him coming through the timber and casey's tree stand was right up my head so he was call it you know five feet above me i could see bone but i couldn't make him out and i said can you see him and i think he said it's him and i'm like really he goes it's him like we just saw the ghost that we've been chasing for two years. And it's, yeah. and then, so he got biased. We never had a shot. We went in there, uh, two, three more days in a row and saw him two more times. And then we moved to set at high noon to move it down the ridge 30 yards. And that's when we killed him the next day on November the 9th. Um, so we hunted him five straight days and trust me, I, I, I did not like, doing that going into the woods and penetrating leaving all that scent five straight days but every single day we went in there for all day sets we never came out um and on november 8th we did not see him at all so i thought with all this moving and us laying our scent everywhere i'm like we probably pushed him out and i called mark and he said well two things are going to happen you're going to push him out or you're going to kill him and i said well i'm going to keep going he said you might as well what do you got to lose and so we went back in there on the ninth and sure enough we got him but <laughs> what why i'm telling you this is if regardless if he's 200 inches or 110 if you really want to learn something about whitetail hunting focus on a deer and study him and try to kill that one and it will drive you mad trust me it will but you will learn so much about yourself your property uh, corridors uh, their behavior that it'll forever change you. And I wish I would have done that years ago. It just happened to be him. And ever since then, we're so much more effective, so much more. We, we hunt less and we kill more. Uh, prime example, the following year was two, was uh, extra innings was a 239. We killed him on the very first sit. The next year, uh, Missouri deer 194, we killed him on the very first sit. The next year after that, we killed uh, triple play on the very first sit. So we truly have learned a ton and we rely a lot on, on trail cameras and, and looking glassing from afar. Um, but um, once you can figure some, some things out in personalities, uh, it's, it will change everything about you and, and you'll, make, you'll, you'll be much more efficient. All right. There's a lot of questions I have in there. Go ahead. <laughs> I, first of all, that's, I've, I've, so this was the first year that I pinpointed two bucks that I, that I tried to target. Um, and like, I don't even, I'm not even to, to the level that you're at and it's been extremely frustrating as it is like, where are these two? Why aren't they showing up? Where are they, where are they betting? Why aren't they here? They should be here. What's going on, you know? things, things like that. And, and I kind of equate it to like, um, 
in the sense of like, if you ever waterfowl hunt, they always say never flock shoot, pick a bird and go. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, right. and that's, and I, and I was like, it's kind of in that sense is like during the rut, you can sit a funnel and get, and get lucky on any of these bucks, but if Honor, you, you bet. Right. But if yep. you're chasing specific deer, there's specific setups for those specific deers that are targeted towards them. And that's, that's what I believe that you're confirming that I haven't like done that for myself yet, but I, I think that that's, that's really the case. And I did get a look at one of the bucks that I was chasing one of the two. Um, it was like five 45 in the morning, got light at like six 15. I was in my stand and I could just see his rack going through the woods taking a trail that I had never even known existed. And what time of year was it? What time of year was it? October 23rd, 24th. Was he behind a doe at that time? It's probably too early. No, he was moving off a food source, but he had taken, uh, I had trail camera photos of him. I was in, so we have, the property that we have is a valley we own the valley and the ridge sides. We don't own the tops, the actual farmer tops. Um, so I had photos of him crossing a trail. Oddly enough, I hosted an archery shoot at my property and it's a trail that I made for the archery shoot so that we could put some 3D targets out in this valley. And he was crossing right where I made that trail. Well, let me tell you one thing. Deer, deer are extremely lazy. If you cut a path or you mow it or, or you mow, you, you will change their, 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 uh, their, their, their paths. I mean, they are lazy. They will take the easiest path. Um, if, if you watch, uh, you can go on YouTube, uh, Drew Outdoors YouTube channel and you can watch extra inning. Um, we actually, we found out where it was bedding and we, we pinpointed that. And then we, we had a, uh, a mower brush hog go to where we thought he was coming out to this bean field and we mowed a path um right down in front of our our blind and when he came out he took the path nice um so you, you can really dictate somewhat dictate whitetail's movement somewhat yeah um, once you learn the, the tricks in the trade decoying is another thing i i I love decoying deer. Love it. It's probably my number one thing to do. Okay. Um, and it just, it shrinks food plots. It, it, it exposes deer that normally wouldn't be exposed. And it takes everything off of you onto the decoy. So you can get away with a lot more movement, a whole lot of things. Talk to me about how it shrinks a food plot. Well, what it does is, uh, prime example, uh, Casey uh my sidekick he uh we had a deer our food plot uh that he killed that one this fall on is probably uh it's probably 60 yards wide 60 65 wide and it's probably about 150 to 175 yards long i don't think it's 200 but it's close it's close and he came from the far uh he came from the, I got to think about this. He came from the far east end and we were on the far southwest corner. Okay. And once he came into that plot, he saw that decoy. He did not stop stride until he got there. 
Okay. Now, obviously that's early November um, when they're doing that, you know, their mindset. But I mean, we, I have killed so many over decoys. It, it's nuts. And it's because those, once they see it, it's not a deer they recognize. They, they're curious. They got to come check it out. And if you set up your decoy right, and we can talk about that too, if you like, um, it's, it's more often than not. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it does work against you. Sometimes they, they're scared of them and they just move on. And sometimes you have does out there that blow and, and stomp and all that things. That does happen. Um, but I've had more luck than uh, unhappy sits. I can tell you that. And okay. from the, about the 20, 25th, 26th of October through call it the 15th, 16th, 17th of November, uh, depending on the setup, I will take a decoy almost every single sit, almost. It's okay. a pain in the butt to carry and they're loud and they're not, they're cumbersome and all those things, but they are well worth it. I, I killed my, I killed my Missouri 144 this year over a decoy during rifle season in Missouri. I took a bow <laughs> and we got them, we got them with a bow over a decoy. And that's on deer cash. And well, so is Casey's Casey and I are both on deer cash. You want to thumb some thumb through it. You can see both of those kills, um, okay. both over decoys. Gotcha. Matter of yeah. fact, it just launched, uh, three or four days ago on the YouTube channel, the whole entire hunt, both those hunts I just mentioned are on Drew Outdoors YouTube channel. You can go watch them. It's like 22 minutes long. Okay. Yeah. Well, they, I haven't seen those they, yet. They, they, then you can see it and you can see the food plots and all of it because we have drone footage of where they came and so forth. So it'll really okay. kind of put what I'm explaining to you in, in a visual uh, state of mind. Yeah. All right. So I, um, that's awesome. I do want to cover decoys before, before we jump there. Um, so now, now I'm backtracking from uh, uh, property management and decoys and we're going to get there at some point. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things that I've, I've kind of thought, and you're proving me wrong right now. So like, this could certainly be a misconception on my end is that where you find shed antlers typically dictates their wintering ground. It doesn't yeah. always dictate their rut or early season ground, but you killed major league where you found the sheds and you had enough confidence that this was his home to go in there during the rut. And, and obviously it paid off. Can you like talk to me about that a little bit and explain that a little bit? Well, well, there's, there's many different data points. The reason why we hung that set, which is we knew he lived on that side of the farm. Okay. We just could not dial him in where, and yes, you're right. That tells you where he shed. It's where he wintered. Absolutely. But I believe once I found the first set, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Then I found the second set and I'm like, he is not coming out of here. Because one thing I can tell you out of all of this, all, most of the whitetails that we harvest are without a shadow of a doubt, four. Um, and that's very on the young side. Most of them are five, six, and seven. Casey's that just shot an eight pointer here. A week ago, I have 100% confidence he's eight, but I believe he's nine. Um, Dang. So with, so with that said, um, when, when we have that much history with deer, you, you, you learn a lot. And I'm like, okay, he, he's in this perimeter. 
We can't figure him out. We found a shed. He has to be here. He's not, we're not, we, we lose him every year from, from late October through the middle of November. And I'm like, this is where he's at because he has to be. I've got him surrounded and I can't find him. So it's really, it's more or less a process elimination. He's okay. not here, not there. He's not here. He's not there. Two years in a row, I found a shed. So I'm like, he's not coming out of here. He's finding his does. He's pushing them into this, this pretty woods. And it was a sanctuary for us. We never went in there. The only time we go in there is to shed up. That's it. Mm. That was the first time, first time ever. And I had that farm for almost uh, 15 years. It's the first time I ever hunted that hardwood ridge. Because we, okay. we, because we know what, what goes on in there. And I'm like, it's not worth it. Well, it was worth it because I'm like, we've tried everything else. We got to try this. So it right. wasn't, I'm not proving you wrong. It was a process of elimination of how I got there. Right. Oh yeah. And, and I guess you're proven that just because that's his wintering ground, it doesn't mean it is not his rut ground either. Like it could right. be right. Very much. Very yeah. much. And, 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 and how we killed how we killed him, he actually pushed the pushed the doe into that ridge line. We killed him behind the doe. Okay. On the on November 9th at like, I don't know, 7 30, 8 o'clock. Oh man. So and when you first went in there, was it more were you did you like dive straight into that ridge or were you like 20, 20 yards in? Uh we were probably oh 85 to 100 probably okay so you went in there pretty deep on the first shot 85 to 100 and the reason why is because it was the right tree and where the tree was it was kind of on the top of a ridge so i could see both the east and west mm. and we could see pretty deep to the north and i i was convinced he was betting to the north is what i was convinced he was mm -hmm. and i wanted to find a spot that if i missed him i could see both sides so we went in there we hung the set that summer thinking if and when we're going to go, I want to observe day one so we can make adjustments because we've never sat there before. Right. Um, and and it, here, here's another great thing that, that I would love to share, which is, you know, Casey and I spent a lot of time together in the woods, whether it's in a tree stand or, or blind or whatever it may be. And we may, obviously we're not going to kill a deer every single time we go in. But one thing I will tell you is we're going to harvest information every single time we go. And when we sit, we sit with intent and we sit with, we have, as everybody has on their phones, uh, the app called notes and we will watch and we will watch traffic. We will watch bucks. We'll, we'll pay attention to the different age of bucks and go, okay, that's different. They're now coming out of this corner. They used to be coming out of the East corner. Now they're coming out of the Northwest corner. Why is that? What's changed? Because mother nature's landscape is always changing. One corner was brushy. Maybe a tree fell on it, cut the, cut the, uh, trail off you don't know until you go in there in spring right so um that is one thing that i learned early on is don't waste your sits get your nose out of your phone playing games and observe what's happening in front of you and make those notes and make adjustments that following spring to change the deer traffic to push those deer in front of bow range or gun range whatever your your weapon of choice is and since we've been doing that is what's changed our, our success rates through the roof. I mean, you ought to see our notes at the end of the year. We compile them, we go over them, then we rack and stack them based on financial commitment and the amount of time it's going to do. And then what's going to be the best improvement with the time we have. 
And we're, we're never going to get to all of them. We never do. But we definitely rack and stack them. And since we've been doing that, it's been changing our success rate. I mean, Casey yeah. killed his largest, what, what, what 171, uh, what, two weeks ago with a bow. I mean, he go watch YouTube. You'll see him. He went nuts, you know. And it's all because of work and effort. And, you know, you don't kill them in the fall. You kill them in the spring. That's when you kill them. With the setup. Because, yeah, because of the setup. That's exactly right. You, you kill them March, April, May. That's when you kill them is when you get in there and do two TSI work or warm season grasses or whatever you're going to do. Change your food plot from a, from a rectangle to an hourglass or maybe an L to create a pinch point or, you know, edge feathering, whatever you're going to do. That's when you kill the deer. You don't kill them in November. Gotcha. Okay. So um, back, to, back to how you dove in on Major League the first time. You said you you had set up in in the pretty woods and it was meant to be an observation sit or it's meant to be like a potential kill sit, but also an observation sit like you wanted to be able to see. Were you like since then, right, you've you, you said you killed all three of those additional other giants, 94, 200s on the first sit when you made that that commitment to sit in there on a like, quote unquote, observation sit. Were you nervous that essentially like you were blowing that opportunity of the first sits, the best sit? Well, yeah, for sure. But I mean, I didn't, we, we hung it so that we could see both sides and we hunted knowing that it was going, but the problem was, I didn't know if he was going on the East or West side of the Ridge. Okay. I didn't know that. So I had to find myself, where can I see that knowing that there's a probably good chance I'm going to have to make an adjustment. And we saw him and he was like 60 yards away on this path, right? We saw him the next day in the same path. And I looked at Casey, I said, at noon, we're pulling down, we're moving 31 yards and we're going back up. We never, le we never left the woods. And right. so I, I was ranging different trees before we pulled the set down. And I had the tree nailed down. I said, that's the tree we're going to. We're gonna make this quick and fast and quiet as fast as we can. We did it at high noon. And we got down, moved it over. We're down and up in 45 minutes with, you know, okay. sticks and two tree stands. And we went back up and sat. The next day uh, was the eighth. We didn't see him. And I'm like, moving the tree stand blew him out. And then yeah. on the ninth at 730, eight o'clock, we shot him at 31, 32 yards. Yeah. And here, here, here's another trick that I learned that was extremely painful on this particular hunt, which is, that morning of November the 9th, the wind speed was about, I think it was 12, 13, 14 miles an hour. Um, and when you're in hardwoods, oak ridges, those leaves are still on in that early November. That wind speed will cover a lot of your noise because of the leaves. Okay. So he was with a doe. He was keyed up. He had no idea we were there. And um, I was 100% certain he was going to jump the string, 100% certain. And so I put the pin right, right on his, his crease of his belly, just, pulled, just off him, because I feared he was going to dump into the arrow. I clean missed it on shot one. He had no idea what happened, no clue. And then he jumped another, I'm going to call it, 10 yards, eight yards. And then I zipped him 
And then he ran, well, he ran exactly 47 or 48 behind a tree and stood there. And I put it, I put the, the third arrow through a Y of a tree that was about six inches at 47, 48 yards and zipped him all the way up through his quarter and up through, he was quartering away pretty hard. Um, I don't know if you saw that shot um, on YouTube. But, no, I didn't, but. Yeah, so the third shot that, and it was, I couldn't believe I pulled it off. But my point being is after I went back and did that, I was like, what happened? Why did he not jump the string? And so since then, I've, I've went back and I've watched hundreds of hours of video of white tails, the deer that you're shooting on a food plot. If you notice the arrow that is going at that deer is the only one that is jumping the string. The other ones are domino affecting around the reaction of the deer you're shooting. So if, if, if you have a buddy, go stand 30, 40, 50 yards down, 40 yards down range and have him shoot an arrow and listen to it. I don't know if you've ever done it, but you should. Yeah, I've done it once. It's wild. Okay, so you can hear it. So now when I'm, when I'm in the timber and I'm hunting deer in the timber, and that wind speed is north of 11, 12 miles an hour, put the pin on it because that wind speed and those leaves will cover the sound of the arrow. They, I'm 90% certain they will not jump the string. Now, when you're in a food plot, that's a different conversation. You're in open field, different conversation. The 194, I actually put it underneath him. He was at like uh, 47 or 50 yards. I can't remember exactly, but it was in the high 40s. And he was keyed up. He knew we were there. He was staring at us, right at us. He knew he had us pinned. And I was like, he's going to jump the string. And he jumped right into it. Um, and, if, and if I don't put it where I put it, that arrow goes over his back. Right. So little things like this is going to increase your kill rate. And you got to think within seconds of what you're going to do and where you're going to put it because it'll change from a miss to a clean hit. Right. Um, but that, that is a lesson that was hard for me to learn. And when I went back and watched the video, I'm like, how? And I'm like, the wind speed was so high. The leaves were so loud. He couldn't hear anything. So don't, right. don't overlook that fact. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Did you, before you shot at him, did you go, did you do the, or whistle? No, he had him? no clue we were there. And that's another okay. thing that, and I know that a lot of guys are going to have difference of opinion. And my opinion is based on experiences. So I'm not going to say somebody's wrong. I'm just going to say what's worked for me and my experiences has changed the way I hunt because of my experiences. Yeah. I prefer not to grunt at deer unless it's my last chance. And the reason why is the minute you grunt them to stop them, you've now told them where you're at. And if you ever grunt or rattle a deer, they come to the tree. They come within three or four yards of the tree every single time. And so they're so intuitive that the minute you announce yourself, you have now switched the surprise. Now they're, they, they now have the upper hand on you and they are so fast and they move so quick that I do my best not to do that. Oh, like the 194, I grunted because it was my only chance. He was going away. It was my last chance to do it. And right. he, he, he pegged us dead to rights, but um, extra innings um, was not, uh, right. he was he through natural naturally. movement. Um, triple play was natural movement. Major league was natural movement. 
the 194 was the only one I grunted. And we, there's many guys that disagree with that, and that's fine. But there's one thing that is fact, is once you, once you grunt, you do announce yourself, and now they know exactly where you're at. And I, I don't like that. I don't like right. it. No, personal opinion. I'm, I'm in the same boat as, as you. I don't, I don't like to grunt at them. I'm cause I'm a, I'm like, I don't want to announce my presence. Like you said, but B it puts them on an alert to jump the string. Right. That's a hundred percent. Yeah. 100%. So that like, yeah. especially if you're in a high pressure area or they've been shot at before or anything like that. So two years ago, and this was a hundred percent my fault, but, um, two years ago I had a buck come in and my wind had switched throughout the, well, hunting these valleys has taught me a lot on wind direction. So it was a, it was a, a Northwest wind where I was sitting, which was great when the wind was sub five miles an hour right away in the morning. Um, but once it picked up, it actually switched around and rotated and did all the things crazy wind does. And it started blowing Southwest. Um, when I was in that stand in that Valley and this buck came in and he stood behind, I, I noticed him at 30 yards. He came from behind me, noticed him at 30 yards. My shooting lane was at 25 and he had about 15 yards to get to my lane by the time I noticed him. And he had stopped right before my lane and he sat there and he did that old nose flick up, licked his yeah, nose. He, he knew something wasn't right. And I was, yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. And he was, if, if there was a straight South or a Southeast wind, I was totally out of it, but he was probably like 15 yards out of my scent cone. Right. I had about 10 yards to put one in on before he knew exactly where I was. So then like, I just, as, as, as soon as he put his head down and flicked his tail again, I drew he came out to 25 as I was getting ready on him. He kind of turned and started quartering away and walking up the hill. And in my brain, I jumped from a 25 yard shot to a 30 yard shot, even though he only took like one step, it just like flipped in my switch. And I put my 30 pin on his lungs and I just shot, you know, two inches high. And I was like, ah, and that shouldn't have, it shouldn't have made a huge difference. Like I probably pulled the shot, whatever, but I didn't, I had a bunch of questions on that from buddies and friends. Cause I filmed it all. Um, I posted it to Instagram and they're like, why didn't you, why didn't you stop them? Why didn't you stop them? I was like, well, Instagram only lets me post a one minute clip. If you would have seen before he was stopped there for about two minutes, sent checking. And I was terrified that if I did go. So, you know, so let me back. ask, let me ask a question. You said he was yeah. at 25 yards. Yeah. Okay. Um, what, what, at, if, do you recall your, your arrow? Feet per second by chance the setup you yeah. were using happened yeah sure and this what is, is this will be a fun conversation because i see where you're heading with it so i shoot to 275 276 okay so your situation is what caused me to change my setup i've been where i've been where you're going um i for whitetail setups I build my arrow and my poundage around 310 feet per second or faster. And here's the reasons why is at 310 feet per, per second faster based on my draw length and my weight poundage, I can shoot one pin out to 30 yards. Now, when I go up to 20, it's going to be anywhere from an inch and a quarter to two inches high, which I can live with. Right. So, 
where I'm taking this is if your setup is different, if you would have had my setup, you wouldn't, you wouldn't worried about it. You would have put the pin on them and let it eat and it wouldn't have mattered. Right. And early on, I had a 20, 25 and 30 yard pin. Well, that five yards, if you're five yards off, it's a difference between a swing and a miss. And so since I've changed my setup, our hit ratio and success has gone through the roof because I don't have to process. I don't have to guess. I range the setups, everything within 30, it's top pin and we go. Don't have to think about it. Right. And I don't move as much because I don't have to range. Yeah. So once I figured that out probably a decade ago is when my kill ratio went through the roof. So okay. it's something to consider. Now there's guys yeah. out there going, you know what? That's too light of an arrow. Well, um, what's your, are you shooting? What's your poundage? And I know you're a tall dude, so you're probably shooting. Yeah. So my, my poundage is right at 70 pounds, anywhere from 70 to 73, depending on the bow. Uh, my arrow weight usually falls between 408 and 415. Okay. Um, I've, I've had arrow weight as low as 380 before. Um, killed them all. Um, our arrows were snapping at that, at that weight. We moved when I get to that, my, my, my favorite weight is 410. That seems to be pass-throughs are great. The arrow stability, they, they don't, they don't snap, um, any of that stuff. Um, and since I've been doing that, you know, Casey, you, you ought to see the math I have in my, in my workbench. It, it drives a guy, man, crazy. Um, <laughs> but it, it pays off and these little things add up in the long run, because if you can do all the homework up front, it's going to increase your success rate in the field because it's going to minimize mm -hmm. your mistakes and maximize your kill ratio. And that's the difference because you don't have to think you don't have to yeah. worry about. It. Yeah, I know. And I so would, if, so if you would have had that set up, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have missed cause it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Yeah. I, I hear you. Um, I'm not, it's something to, to certainly consider. Cause I know Levi, like Levi Morgan's in the same boat as you, um, kind of shooting at four, 10, four, 24, 30, similar draw length, similar draw weight. I'm running 550 grains, um, 75 pounds, 30 inch draw shooting 275. And if, so the thing that I was very happy about that with is I did pass through the elk shoulder and his rib and I passed through the entire thing. I know okay. elk is totally different than whitetails. Cool. Okay. Now, now you're going down right? a different path. So uh, now, you want, now you want to ask me what my elk setup is? No, no, no. It's okay. So, so I'm explaining where I'm at. And that was, I wanted a setup that I was very comfortable with shooting, shooting a quartering towards whitetail. If I had to put one in the shoulder and one that I was very comfortable with elk and I didn't want to switch. I just wanted one setup. And I'm also going to openly admit that I had buck fever like a mother and I could have pulled the shot so poorly <laughs> that, you know, well, it's just, it's just me. It, so, yeah, right. So going, going forward, my thought process there is why I put the 30 pin on his lungs rather than the 30 pin on his heart is where I needed to be. I needed my gap to be, you know, from the top of the lungs with my 20 pin and my 30 would have been on his heart. And then 
I should have been just fine. But in my head, I just moved the 30 pin up. And I also, I certainly understand. And I purchased a one pin and I'm going to dial it in this year at, it seems like for whatever reason, I set my stands up 25 yards from where I, where I'm expecting these deer to come. It's usually somewhere in like 22 to 28 yard range. Mm -hmm. So I would like to run a single pin next year and probably set it for 25 or something like you're saying, where essentially one pin will cover a lot of ground. And maybe that's a reduction, a little reduction in weight to cover more ground and still be happy with it. Um, well, you have, you have a lot of arrow weight to give up if, and, still be, <laughs> and still be plenty efficient if you want to go down that path. I, yeah, I agree. Maybe, maybe that's something we can argue over beers this summer. <laughs> well, I mean, I, but I, I can't I, argue with the amount of no, deer you have behind you. It, it, it's not arguing. It's, it's, it's just, the, it's just a different philosophy. It doesn't make right. it right. Um, you know, when we go elk hunting, I'm, I'm pulling a, a five ten arrow. Okay. So, you yeah. know, so, but for whitetail, I, I have two different setups for that reason. I'm not mm -hmm. going to shoot a five ten and a whitetail. Why? It's overkill. It's like taking a, it's like, to, you know, would I take a, a 50 caliber rifle to go shoot uh, a prairie dog? Absolutely not. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> and and sure. so you, you scale it down based on what's important. You want, you yeah. want, I'm, I'm a big fan of having two holes in a whitetail for obviously blood trails and, and bleeding them out quicker. Um, and that 410 arrow seems to be the magic number for me. Um, Have and, you punched and through shoulder with, out of, with that? And it's 130. So it's perfect. It's, it's, that arrow speed, kinetic energy, and slug weight, and all those things, it's, it's push and pull all the time. But once you find that magic thing that works for you, your kill rate will go through the roof because you're more accurate and you're flatter. The flatter the trajectory arrow, the more, the right. more accurate you are. Mm -hmm. And it gives and, you more forgiveness. You can make more mistakes because you're flatter. Right. Have you, have you passed through any shoulders with that setup? I don't, I don't shoot at the shoulder. Okay. I don't. I, so yeah, I, I, I mean, accidents may happen in the future, but I, I Have really it. not to. I really don't, but I try not to. Oh, I, I agree, and I'm not. I didn't try to shoot my elk in the shoulder, and I don't try to shoot any deer in the shoulder. Yeah. The my main thought process in going with that heavier arrow was, if I do, I would like to just push through it anyway. Um, but I don't, I, I, don't I did a test in, in elk camp, probably, oh, it's well over a decade ago. We shot a bunch of elk and I took all their shoulders and, um, fresh I'm talking yeah. with 24 hours and we put them against targets. Nobody in camp penetrated the shoulder. Nobody. Okay. Yeah. Brought yeah. heads fixed 500 grain arrows, 550 guy was pulling you know, 75 pounds, one had 80, nobody broke through the shoulder on an elk, nobody. And I'm not saying you can't, right? but ever since that day, I'm like, I saw so many setups and I'm like, oh, it's not even worth trying. Sure. And yeah, and there's a difference between like the shoulder whole bone or the scapula that True. goes off. True. So I went True. through the scapula for, for clarification with everybody, which gotcha. is, right? That thing's like a, a half inch, maybe quarter inch at the smallest, but half inch probably. That's totally different than shooting like the knuckle in the shoulder, right? Yeah. Like yeah. where that scapula attaches to the actual, yeah. what is that? The femur maybe. Um, yeah. So 
Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting concept. And it's that's one of the popular topics in archery today, right? I mean, you said you're a stick and string guy. Like that's something that you see going back and forth on um, on forums a lot. And and like you, I, I sincerely appreciate you saying it doesn't make it right. It's just what everybody's belief is. Because I, I think that's where it's at too. Whatever you're confident in and you think you're going to kill deer with, until it proves you wrong, stick with it. Hundred percent. That's that's bow. That's arrow. That's that's broadhead. That's release. Your setup, all of it. Yeah. Because if you don't have confidence when you walk into the woods, you're in trouble. I I've been there. I've been there. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it does suck. Um. All right. So one of the um, I want to jump back again to um. Why can't I think of that buck's name that we were talking about earlier? Major League. Extra major, major League, yeah. Play. I wanted to say Bo Madness for some reason. So jumping back to, to Major League, when you initially set up for that observation sit and then said, you know what, he's 60 yards down the trail twice, we're moving down, was that we're – was that set up in a way that he would not wind you if he came in from the east or the west? Every single time he came from the north, okay. which is exactly what I thought. So we moved west down to the to the ridge, but he was always coming from the north. The day we killed him, he came due west of us, and we had a northwest wind. Okay. So, that is, so all of those, I mean, coming from the north or coming from the west, a northwest wind was good anyway yeah. and, and we, were lucky, I would have, we were lucky enough to have five straight days of high pressure and predominant north winds whether it was awesome. due north northwest or whatever but it was always had predominant north to those five days and that's the wind we had to have to go in there right okay and that's that's kind of what i was getting at was was how was that wind scenario set up and i imagine you probably took the same entry and exit route in the yep. dark there and back yep. and you were coming from the south or southeast yep something like we we're that. coming straight straight from due south okay perfect yeah and that's like that's one thing that that has changed the amount of deer that i see just in general does bucks small bucks big bucks is that i'm not hunting this area until i get this this wind and i can enter from this area that's right smart. that is something that is personally helped me a ton um and it's 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 good to hear you justify that i, I will tell you I, I, there's a saying I, I try to tell you know young hunters which is you know try to hunt deer without them knowing they're being hunted which is take your exit and entry very serious and minimize them seeing you um it's one thing to hear you and it's another thing to smell you. you. You don't ever want them to see you and you don't want them to smell you. You know, if they hear you, that's, they, they don't know what it is. They can't comprehend that. It could be a coyote. It could be a lot of things, right? It could be another deer for as far as they know. But if they smell you, they know, all right, they associate this part with, you know, human, human traffic. So we spend a lot of time, um, fixing our exit entry that's warm season grasses maybe that's leaving standing corn maybe that's you know um, doing tsi work and taking the the trees and then putting the line in front of our our, our blind or wherever we're going to go to make sure that 
you know, um, if they see us, they can't smell us or they can't, they can't piece it together. Um, and I know I'm, I'm taking it drastic because it's going to happen. You're not going to go out there undetected, but we try to do our best. Right. And, and when we do that, they're, they're much more relaxed. Um, they're, they're deer actually being deer. And when they're deer, they actually spend more time in the daylight. And when they spend more time in the daylight, you have more time to kill them because they're comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And high pressure deer, honestly, are hard to kill just because mm -hmm. they move the first five or 10 minutes in the morning and the last five or 10 minutes in, in before dark. So, you know, the more you allow them to do their thing and hunt the fringes and only dive in when, when it's necessary and let them do their thing, they feel much more comfortable. Gotcha. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I've heard that uh, a few times, but it always, it's always good to restate if you can make property improvements to keep yeah. you from being seen, heard, smelt. It's always going to increase the odds that you're going to see more exactly. deer. Yep. Right. Um, okay. So in terms of the, the property management and um, essentially hunting those fringes, you were saying that the other three bucks that you've killed over the last few years, first sit, knocked them out. How were you able to determine when that first sit should be and, and where you should be sitting? The, the extra innings and triple player polar opposite so they're they're great they're great deer to talk about with this question which is extra innings we didn't kill until the i think it was october 30th um and uh it was we were waiting for a northwest wind and a high pressure and we had them daylighting and the first time we had the perfect scenario was opening weekend of missouri youth season and for you know a decade i always took my son and I'm like, man, of all weekends, this is killing me. But you know what? I wasn't going to put, you know, a big white tail in front of my son having memories and doing all that. So, right. so we, we went and got him a deer. And then four or five days later, it was the perfect day. And, and maybe patience pays off. Or maybe that was just, you know, a greater creator taking care of me because I did the right thing, I guess. I don't know. But um when we found him to back up, when we found him in July uh, on one trail camera, we, we took other trail cameras from other farms and because we didn't have the resources and we flanked him with five or six. I can't remember, but we only got him on one. Okay. Only one camera. And so that told us he was not moving much. Um, his corridor had shrunk. I'm going to call it a 40 or 60 acre section plus or minus, And he wasn't moving. And so I'm like, okay, if we just play our cards right, we wait for the right wind, the right pressure, and we know he's going to be on his feet, we're going to go in there and see what happens. And lucky enough, uh, we got him on, on, on day one. And that was, you know, um, late October. Now, the polar opposite story was last year with uh, triple play. We killed him on October 1st, opening day of Iowa bow season. And... That story is so different because we, we found out where he was betting. We figured that out. And out of all the bean fields we had still standing in our, our farm, 
purely dumb luck. It's there's nothing short of, of luck on this on this scenario. The farmer had planted this particular part later, and it was the only part of the farm that still had beans that were changing from 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 green to brown. And as you know, they love the green beans. And once they start going to brown, they ship off to green plots for a while, and they come back to beans once it's late season. So I was like, okay, it's October 1st coming up. We've got a cold front of all cold fronts. It's going to be, I think it was a 20 to 22 degree drop in temp. We knew that he was going to be on this plot for the next two or three days. Once those beans went all brown, he was going to shift somewhere else. We didn't know where that was going to be, but he, was going to, he wasn't going to be there. And where he was was literally smack dab in the middle of our farm. I'm talking east, west, north, south. You drop a pan, he's dead middle. And I'm like, I was, we, Casey and I were talking, I'm like, you know what? Where he's living now, we know he's there. We've got intel that he is. The beans are not going to turn brown for the next two or three days. We have a small window to do this. So if we're going to do this, let's do it October 1st. Now to do that, we had to walk through a third of our farm and on our way in, walk across bean fields, funnels to get to a creek, to then walk a creek due south about oh, half to three-fourths of a mile to then climb up at the base of the creek where we had a, a box blind set up. New, now, keep in mind, we knew coming out of there, we were going to blow a third of our farm like a Thomas bomb. But yeah. I'm like, if we don't take this risk on him now, with all the intel that we have, when are we going to do it? We know where he is. We have the intel. We have the weather. We have the wind, the wind direction. Yeah, we're going to blow everything out coming out, but he's a world-class animal. So if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? So he's like, I agree. We might as well try. And sure enough, he came out and at 22 yards, we stuck him. So nice. you kind of take all this information, you rack and stack it, you sort it out and you go, you know what? This is a calculated risk. Yes, it's, it's borderline foolish. It goes against everything that we do all the other times of the year as far as entry and exit. And being un undetected but when you have a, a deer like that but i know he was there and who knows when the beans were going to change i'm like we have to take the risk and we did and it paid off so right. there are certain times you push the pedal and there's certain times you pump the brakes um but you have that information and intel to sort through that and go okay is this time or is it not and it you know we got lucky it worked out and it had a chance of not working out but you know, when that early season is, they're very patternable too. Um, and I knew that with those beans being still green, that I knew we only had a few days uh, for that before it was going to change. So I'm like, well, might as well do it now. We know where he's at. And it paid off. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, those are totally, totally different stories, right? Uh, end October, pre-rut, early rut, whatever you want to call it at that point. And then, you know, that first early season green time. Um, which is just, you know, straight food. Right. Um, and you, yeah, you said it is like you, you've made the calculated risk. What are you running cell cameras? Or are you guys checking those by hand yet? We, we do everything. We have it all just because okay. cell cameras are so expensive, you know, so yeah. what we do, you know, we have a lot of, uh, you know, ton, uh, reconics cams everywhere. And then once we, you know, figure stuff out, we only have limited cell cameras. So we'll, we'll strategically use them at the right time of the year gotcha. uh, to try to, you know, drill down on, on certain animals. Um, but 
you know, prime example on that one, when we went and mowed the path to set everything up, we pulled the cameras off the tractor, you know, so we didn't go down okay. in there just to pull the camera. We went down there to do work. And while we're down there, we're pulling cards and leaving the tractor run to cover our scent and noise and all that stuff. So right. that's another trick of the trade too. If you can pull cameras while you're doing work on a tractor, that's a beautiful thing too. Yeah. Yeah, I will say I had uh, this year, I had a nubbin at like six yards while I had a combine at like 28. And uh, <laughs> that, yeah, because I texted the farmer, I said, are you are you picking that tonight? And he said, yeah, I'll be done by four. And at that point, it got dark at six. So I was like, sure, I'll get up there at, you know, three o'clock or 230 or whatever. And I'll hang out for the evening. And he was picking corn. And yeah, it was the only, that was actually the only night that I, so far this year that I've seen a shooter. I don't, I think it was one of the ones that I was after, but I'm not sure. Um, he didn't show up. I have three cameras in that area and he made it around all three of them somehow, but yeah. I saw him at about like 40 yards and I just threw a whole bunch of um, like prickly ash is what it is up there. Um, just like really really small diameter one inch trees that are eight feet tall and full sure. of thorns. They're just really annoying. Sure. Um, and he was working his way through that stuff. Um, and there were some does in, I saw a couple does. I saw this little nubbin and I saw another little uh, eight point that I'd been seeing often, but yeah, tractor was combine was right there. And that those deer didn't not care. Yeah. <laughs> even the big, even the big dog, he didn't, he didn't care. No, he was they just don't. walking around. Um, so I was texting the farmer too. He was in the combine and I was like, big one in the woods. And he's like, really right now? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's, you know, 30 yards from me. Um, anyway. Okay. It, it, that's, those are great dynamics between those two and, and good point to, to check those cams while you're out, you know, doing work, trying to tie that together. So you're going to be out there anyway, plan it at a strategic time or whatever to get out there. Yeah. Um, all right. I know we're rolling, we're rolling on like probably an hour and 20 hour, 30 minutes right now. Um, I do. So let's do a, a speed round here for okay. uh, a decoying. When, when do you like to use decoying and, and how do you run that setup? There's going to be a lot of difference of opinion on this. And all my opinion is based on experiences. So I don't want to have anybody blowing up my Instagram page saying you're <laughs> So I'm going to do a disclaimer right now. Um, I, I love bucks. I have not had a whole lot of good experience around does. I'm not saying you can't. My experiences have not been good. Um, so we always run a buck and we run him. My favorite distance is 18 to 22 yards. And I always do them quartering to me. And the reason why I do quartering to me is because more often than not, the buck is going to approach him plus or minus face face on um, and then that will give you quartering away of the deer you want to harvest or potentially broadside and so a lot of guys will go isn't 18 to 22 kind of close well it is i'm not going to say it's not because it is but i'll tell you the reason why is i figured out that plus or minus 20 yards is it's enough buffer that on these fields that if they want to circle them and put that decoy between you and 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 uh, where your setup is in the decoy, I've never had a buck not 
feel uncomfortable by, by cutting that distance between me and the decoy. What I have when I used to do decoying at plus or minus 30 yards is there are times where a buck will hang up and circle on the opposite side of him and not commit. And that usually happens around 40 to 50 yards. And so they're out of obviously range at that point. So when I started pulling them into that 18 to 20, if they hang up out that 10, they're still at plus or minus 30 or 35. Right. So they're still, in the, they're still in the kill zone. So since I've been doing that, we've increased our kill rate. So that's why I like that 18 to 22. And then when I go out there, if the plot is not flat and it's got some terrain, or if you know a deer is coming from this corner or that corner, I always make sure I shift that, that buck so that I actually squat down to the eye level of the decoy and look through the terrain of the field I'm hunting and make sure I move it certain paths so that I can maximize their visualization once they hit that plot. So gotcha. I may move it, you know, five or six yards one direction when I squat down and look at eye level so I know they can see it. Um, but I always try to stay within 18 to 22. It's very rare I go past 22. Very rare. Got it. Do you ever worry about scent on the decoy? I do. Uh, what we're lucky enough to have a wonderful partner in nose in nose jammer. So before I break the food plot, I actually spray the heck out of my boots, and I always do my best to set the decoy up on my side, meaning where my setup is, and I always stay on that side, my side of the decoy. I don't walk around them. Never do. Okay. Uh, and I set them up, and then. When I'm there, I have my nose jammer in my, my hip pocket and I will spray my boots again before I leave. And then I walk out. And when I walk out, I walk straight to my setup. And when I walk in to set them up, I walk straight from my setup, meaning 90 degrees. So I'll, if I'm in a blind, I'll go to the middle of my blind and I'll go do 90 degrees. Because that way, if they do catch my scent or my track, they're dead middle of my blind and they're probably, they're going to get the arrow before it happens. Right. So I don't go from the corner or 45 degree angle. I get within my, my blind or my tree stand and I go straight, straight out and straight back in. So I minimize that, 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 uh, that scent line. I'm a big fan of nose jammer as well. Uh, decoying in the woods. You ever, never do done it. Never done it. Okay. So I only feel that. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it makes sense because the, the one thing I've learned hunting whitetails for a long time is they like to have an exit and they're very uncomfortable when they come across other whitetails. I'm not saying you can't do it. I've just never done it. Um, I've, when sometimes when deer come up over something and, and they don't, they don't truly smell like deer and they don't meet them on their terms. They're very skittish and they're very startled. Um, but when they see deer in a, in a food plot or an open field, whether it's a, a big grassy thing, it's on their terms and they get to approach them on the, and they see them from afar. Gotcha. So that has always been my theory. Um, and plus, when you carry a decoy into the woods, you're going to hit every single limb and every single branch. <laughs> that is so true. 
and and you're it's you're going to sound like a goddamn freight train going through that place. Right. Yeah, that's fair. So I've just never done it for all those reasons. I'm not saying you can't. Maybe guys have, and they've had great success. That so they are, keep doing it. You okay. know, if the, if the when when not broken, don't fix it. But I just right. never have. Trying right. to get through, trying to get through timber in low light, it is going to be tough. Right. Yo, I I agree. That's where you need your fifteen to twenty mile an hour wind with the leaves on. Still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Maybe these hurricane winds that we had yesterday, right? Yeah. Oh, man. All right. So um, decoying. All right. Done. Uh, so mainly field edge. Sorry. Mainly field edge decoying or open yeah, or area. Open it could be a grassy field, you know, a right. CRP field, whatever. But yeah, open, open, open places where they can see it for sure. Got it. Okay. All right. Moving on to property management. Again, trying stay. No need. No huge elaboration here. Um, top three improvements you would suggest to anybody purchasing a new piece of property or hunting a property for the first year where they can do improvements? Um, increase your bedding, um, whether that be through TSI work, uh, edge feathering and your exit and entry. Now, obviously food plots is, you know, that's a no brainer, right? I think that okay. goes with the thing, but Increasing your exit and entry to minimize your exposure and then increase your TSI work and edge feathering to then uh, dictate deer movement. That would be my top three okay. besides food plots because food plots are, you know, Number one. obviously. Food plots, no numero uno. Okay. But then increase bedding plan. Like but, but you want, but you want to increase, you want to increase the bedding and do the TSI work based on how you're going to hunt them and based on the wind direction you're going to get to and from them. So if, if you're going to dictate and do all this work, do it with a purpose, which mm -hmm. is if you're going to hunt this spot on the north wind, then make sure, and obviously in fall, the most dominant wind is always northwest, most often. So make sure you put that bedding or the timber stand improvement in where you want them to bed so you know where they're bedding. Um, so you have the wind favor every time you go in there. Now, not every deer is going to bed there, but more often than not, the majority of them will. Um, sure. So you might as well put that in your favor. And when you do edge feathering, when you do that, make sure you take advantage of dropping those trees to create uh, either increase the traffic or decrease the traffic based on where your setup is. So it increases their traffic flow in front of you. Did that make sense? What I just said? Yes. I mean, you want to, so I'm sorry, this might be just me being so new to property management, but what is edge feathering? Edge feathering is when you take a bunch of timber that's on the edge of a field and you tip it over. Okay. So, so that you allow more browse for them to eat, but also you dictate where they're going to move, which is okay. They're coming out of a timber line. They can come out anywhere. If you got a hundred, 50 yard timber line, they can come out anywhere, right? Right. I, I don't want that to happen. I'm going to edge feather those fields and say, hey, I want you coming within 40 or 50 yards of my set. And I'm going to dictate how you're going to get there. Gotcha. So I'm going to feather these, these field edges so that when they come from the north, they're only coming out three or four spots based on where I want them to come from. Mm -hmm. So that okay. I know I carry the wind because I'm going to be on this particular wind. So when they come in, 
I, I'm, I know that I'm covered. Got it. Okay. Yes. So then with that knowledge in mind, that makes a lot of sense. So run your edge feathering to increase traffic in front of your set. Exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Just don't, just don't, just don't go edge feathering. Right. Go about it before, because once you cut a tree, you can't glue it back on. So, so, so do it with, do really? It with, do it with, no, I'm serious. I, no, I, no, I mean, no. I know. You, you I know that is a forward. It's got to have yes. a purpose, right? Because once oh. you cut it, you're not getting it back. Right. No, so that is my uh, lay it down in a direction that's going to benefit you. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And, uh, and that's like one of my, my biggest fears. I am where the, this is the third season of hunting the property that we now own and really starting to get into this. And, um, and I'm like, all right, dad, we need to do some property improvements. And he's like, sure, let's plant a food plot over here. And I'm like, okay, why? He's like, I don't know. It seems like a good spot. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Let's just figure out how we're going to hunt this. Cause once we cut these trees down, these trees are 30, 40, 50 years old. They ain't coming back tomorrow. Right. Well, so not, we need coming back in your lifetime. Right. Exactly. So we need to make sure that what we do is right. And we have and, a plan. Uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you some advice on that, which is I've learned a lot through consulting, right? So I've been doing this well over two decades and everything I've learned is find somebody better than you and what you're trying to learn. And even if you have to pay for it, the knowledge you're going to gain is going to carry you a lifetime. Yeah. So if you don't understand it, you're uncertain before you start doing all these land management things, because it's, it, you can't, you can't turn back time. Once you cut trees, you don't want to make mistakes. So it wouldn't be a bad idea to reach out to certain consultants in your area or, or find somebody and, and bend their ear so you don't make a mistake. And the other thing, too, yep. you talk about food plots. Make sure you plant certain foods based on the season you're going to hunt them, like our Wisconsin farm. We know we're only going to hunt this in late season, 100%. I've tried early. I've tried mid. It doesn't work because it's predominantly ag. So now we're buying, whether it's the corn or beans, whatever they have, we're buying it back. We don't even hunt it until late December into January. Okay. And we always buy the grain back. We don't do green plots because I'm not going to hunt over green. I'm going to hunt late season with snow on the ground and really cold temps. And when it's really cold temps and snow, they're always going to grain, whether it's bean or corn. They don't go to green plots. So on our Iowa and Missouri stuff, we have a mixture based on where we're going to hunt them and different food plots, whether it's clover, um, then we have some brassica mix, we have grain fields, but we, we mix it up so they have a variety. So keep that in mind too, based on when you're going to hunt that particular plot. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, are you targeting it? Is your property good early season? Is it good late season? Are you targeting it during the rut? When, when are you doing work there? And that certain is another- farms, Certain farms produce deer certain times of the year. And sometimes it's going to take you a few years to figure that out. But once you do, you know, prime example, last year, I killed my largest Wisconsin buck with a bow, 167. Casey killed another one, a six-year-old, three days or four days after I killed mine. And we only hunted that farm three days. Uh, just those three specific days in the late season then. Yep. We... I killed one. We had one day we didn't, and the next day he killed. And Does that the reason take the why fun out of it, Greg? There, there's some truth to that. 
there, there is some truth to that. I, I don't, I, I'm not going to argue with that, but we hunt so much and throughout different States that we're constantly going somewhere else. So I can see why you say that. And for the common guy. Yeah. But I will tell you this. I love throwing arrows at whitetails, man. I freaking love it. Um, and it, I, I got no problem sitting through three days and killing two deer. I got no problem with that because right. I've spent a lot. I spent a long, lot of years, man, that I didn't kill a deer. A lot of years where I didn't kill a dang animal. Right. So I'm making a lot of lost time. Okay. No, that's fair. I, I'm glad you say that because I'm in that lot of years where I haven't killed. But I've, you know, it's it's that time where, like, I mean, obviously last year I missed 140 incher, which would have been great. The, the year before that, I had three encounters with 140 to 160 inch deer and I couldn't get one killed just out of there. But at the same time, you know, like just what we talked about even before we started the podcast was it is difficult to grow a, a five, six, seven year old deer like Very. on on private well, ground the, without the a high fence. Life, the, the average uh, life of a white cell is three and a half years old. So right. you, you, once you break four, you're doing something that is not normal, whether it's through uh, hunters, coyotes, natural EHD, CWD, just natural predation of being a whitetail, hard winters. Uh, there's all kinds of factors that go into it. So once you break that four, you're doing something that's, that's not normal. Right. So this is, it's not easy what we're trying to do. No. And I'm, yeah. And I've gotten from my internal group of friends, I've gotten a lot of shit for passing. What I know is a three and a half year old, 130 inch eight point. And he was at 15 yards. And I was like, ah, I got to let him walk. You know, he's right there. I'll queued up on the, on camera. And for me, like that's a, that's a good deer, but I know he's going to be a boss next year at four. Right. You can't or even shoot a 130 if you want to shoot a 150. Exactly. So like, yeah. So they're like, man, Heller, you're, you're ridiculous. You're stupid. You should have shot that thing, but God bless it. I hope you get that 155, you know, like, you no, know, I just, I think it comes down to who you are. You know what it, we all, we all graduate as, as hunters through your age. And the more you hunt, you, your mindset changes and, and the older you get, it's a different, you're chasing something different. Yeah. And when I early on, man, I just, I wanted to kill everything. It didn't matter. It was in front of me. It, it just, just who you are. It's just being a yeah. young hunter. And then as you mature and you age, you get in more into land management and you love watching them. You like seeing them grow and seeing their, their demeanor and how they move and enjoying the sits a little different. It's not about the kill. It's about the experience. And then, then you graduate and you shoot your first 150 or 140 and like, okay, I got that. But now let's go after 160 or 165. Then you get that and you, you just keep graduating up. Yeah. Um, but it takes time and it takes a lot of effort and, you know, sharing knowledge like we're doing tonight, but everybody will get there if you really want to spend the time. And that's, that's the, you know, the off season is where you kill them. You don't kill them in the fall. And we spend a lot of time doing it. I mean, if Casey and I think whitetail hunting and, and I know our two wives will tell you this almost 365 days a year. I'm, I'm serious when I say it, it, yeah. it, it is that addictive. now we may not be in the field 365 days a year, but we're constantly texting. I'll be in a plane or coming back and I'll, I'll look, I constantly look at an arrow going, you know what, we should be looking at this plot this spring. I, we should be putting a plot here and, and cancel this one because 
it didn't pan out this year. We ought to move it down here. And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, and, and if you got a buddy who you can bounce ideas off, that's even better because he's going to help you or he's going to go, yeah, I don't know. He's going to think of something you didn't think of. And you always come out a better situation if you got somebody you trust that you can run ideas by always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fair. That is very fair. Um, all right. So you said that, uh, the uh and i do have i do have that buddy so his a uh, friend of mine who's been on the podcast multiple times his name's parker his family has 200 acres 10 minutes down the road from our house so i bounce ideas off him all the time and he's got seven bucks over 140 on his wall so he's and he's having a dry spell as of late as well he's just like dude i don't know what is going on but i've been oh it's hunting man don't yep. don't kill yourself. don't do yeah. it yeah yeah, uh, you're gonna. Have, it's no different than baseball, professional athlete. You're not gonna have good years every year. It's just not gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I'd make that makes sense. Um, so, well, anyway, I have that buddy, and yeah, it's great to to bounce ideas off of him. But you said you hunted that uh, Wisconsin late season farm three times, killed three bucks or two bucks. No, two two bucks in three days. Three, three bucks three in three days. What? Yeah. Uh, what is your what is your best advice for we're rolling into late season here this is december i don't know 16th today yeah what is yeah. your best advice for for people going forward from that right now time frame to mid mid late january when you can still hunt in wisconsin you got to leave the grain man whether it's corns or beans we 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 actually meet the farmer we stake it out um this year i couldn't do it but casey physically ran and jumped in the combine with the farmer and we staked it him and i used hunt on x and we drew drew the line of where we wanted it and he ran out there and he told the farmer where exactly to go if you don't if you don't have beans or corn in late season it honestly is a waste of time um and okay once it, where we're at we're predominantly in an agricultural part of the country we have very little woodlots um and so in those woodlots we spend a lot of time doing timber stand improvement and knocking over so we have woody browse for them to eat in the winter. Um, so we try to increase that so they have multiple sources why they're coming to our place. And as you know, come late season, you will attract deer that you did not have all year long because you've got food. And, you know, uh, talking with Lee Lukoski as much as I do, his, his favorite, his favorite year is part of the year is late season because they're slaves to their stomach. They, they will eat, they have to eat. And if you've got the food and you've got the right wind, you can get there, which is predominantly more often than not North wind, um, that time of year, and you got the food, you will get bucks that you didn't know you had. And, um, it's, it's tough to sit, especially in Wisconsin. Last year, I think we had like, it was pushing two feet of snow when we killed those two bucks. And it was, I mean, cold. I, it was frigid. Um, it's a long sit. You know, you try to go in there the last hour, hour and a half because it's too cold. You can't sit there too long. But right. um, it, it's, it's the best sits. Just minimize them and, and make sure you've got grain in front of you and, and stay out of there as long as you can until the cameras tell you to go in and then go because they're, they're magical sits because those they're slaves to their stomach that time of the year. Gotcha. Are you on board with, uh, the colder, the better? 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, okay. within reason, if it's too cold, you can't go. It's, you know, it's unbearable. We don't go, of course, but yeah, no doubt when it's cold and there's snow on the ground, it, it, they, they move. Like they what move. is, what is cold? Like, like is zero the coldest where you'll go or is like, yeah, last year we killed one. It was like 15 or 12 degrees, something like okay. that. Yeah. It was, it was cold <laughs> enough to make your bow creak when you draw. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, we, uh, I always make sure I got hand warmers and you can go on Amazon and buy those electrical, uh, their little pods that electrical hand warmers, you can turn them yeah. on. And those, ever since I found those, those are a godsend for late season. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you call yeah. me, you call me all you want. I'm just something smarter, not harder. Um, <laughs> but those things, I put one in each pocket because, you know, bows are cold, man, mm -hmm. you know? Um, oh but, yeah. You hold on to that grip too long and your hands like freezing up, man. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's yep. right. I've been in that, I've been in that scenario where you're like, you better take a step, man. Cause this is getting cold. Yeah. And I've, I've learned myself out of now. Now I wrap mine. I wrap them all now. So I don't have that problem. Yeah. I picked up, I picked up a wrap this year as well, just for, well, for my, my hands naturally are just like sweaty. Like they are currently yeah. sweaty right now, but sure. yeah, I got a, I got some grip tape on there now, which I'm hoping is going to help me. Yeah, it that works. Cold. No doubt. It works. Right. I'm not a glove guy either. It's just, I, if they are, they're very thin. Right. Yeah. Big very muff, thin. big muff, lots of hand warmers. No That's, right. That's right. <laughs> All That's right. How win. That's how you win a late season war. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Well, hey, Greg, thank you so much for popping on, man. Really appreciate it. Where can people find you if they want to hit you up, if they want to ask you questions or check out your content? Yeah, I'm, I'm very heavy in the Instagram. So just go to uh, Greg Glessinger, which is uh, G-L-E-S-I-N-G-E-R um, at Jury Outdoors. Um, if you want to DM me there, great. I'm not much of a Facebook guy, so don't send me a Facebook because I probably won't respond. But um, IG, if you send me a DM, uh, usually after podcasts, I get pretty heavy on them. So give me a couple, three days after this launch and I'll be happy to uh, follow up and address any questions you have. Cause I was, I was once there too. And you know, the more we share, the better off we get and shorten that learn curve and the better, the better enjoyment you're going to have in the woods. And that's what it's all about. So we can't help each other. And what's the point of doing this? So I'm all about it. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'll put that, I'll put your your info in the show notes. And then also, right, just Greg Glessinger in YouTube, Drury Outdoors, go find yeah. those. And also in DeerCast, right? Absolutely. Find all that yep. stuff in DeerCast. Yep. If you're an Onyx Elite member, you get DeerCast for free. So yep. hop in there. Um, great, great app. Love that app. And it pro during season, it seemed like every day. <laughs> it's like- Oh, it's a day. Between the content, the kills, the videos, the articles, I think they're over right. like 750 or it may be even 900 articles. I'm, I, I, it's, it's a lot. It's less than 1,000, but it's, it's more than 700. I know that. Mm -hmm. And there's always interesting information there. Um, and, you know, there's fan share. There's a giant tracker in there. Then obviously you got deer, deer cast track that if you kill a, you hit a deer and you really need to know, you know, what's, what's the, uh, how long should you wait? Is it a good hit, bad hit? They got videos to give you ideas of how long to wait before you want to track. I mean, it's, it's an 
incredible, valuable tool. I mean, it is incredible. So if you don't have DeerCast, it's one thing I would strongly recommend you looking into. It's only 20 bucks for, for the Elite version, but if you have a Hunt on X Elite um, um, app, then you can obviously get it for free as, as Anthony was saying, but um, we're on YouTube as well, the Drew Outdoors YouTube channel. There's tons of stuff on that as well. Um, those, those hunts are dropping usually within, oh, a week or 10 days of every kill. I mean, they're producing them really fast. Yeah. So if you're looking for more content, um, jump on that and you'll see plenty of it. It never seems to stop. All right. Awesome, man. Thank you for being on. Appreciate the time. Uh, for everybody listening, if you enjoyed the podcast, please go follow Greg, follow Drury Outdoors. If you're not, obviously, you very likely are those guys. That whole system that they've developed is awesome and what they got going on there. And uh, if you enjoyed the podcast as well, please like, please subscribe. Really appreciate that. And if you have the time, I would really appreciate a review as well. Those help raise the rankings and, and just let people find me a lot easier. All right. Thank you, everyone, for being on. Appreciate it. Catch you next time.